there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that is all about seeking Jesus on deeper theological levels, because he is worthy of all of our devotion. episode of Simply Devotion. I'm Pastor Vinny, and I'm right here with my co-host, professional educator, Jonathan Martin. Hey, just a quick note before we jump into this super special Easter week extended episode. I want to just apologize that our episodes haven't really landed uh, every other week like we had planned, uh, just the last little while, and that all reflects on me. I'm currently working on my doctorate, trying to lead a church through post-COVID, hopefully, and, you know, family life, computer malfunctions, there's just been a lot, but we're back, and we have a special extended episode for you, just in time for Easter, so let's get at it. Thanks for having me. John, do you realize, like, we are definitely in the third quarter. We are in the wind-down section of season two. Yeah, it's been been quite the journey. It's been a fun journey, an exciting journey. And I think you and I, as well as our audience, has learned a lot. Yeah, I think... You know, having done season one solo um, and having done season two with you and now being the third quarter of season two and wrapping it up, I really just want to say it is a lot more fun to do it with a co-host. And I think you do learn more just from that interchange. Like you and I look at things differently. Mm -hmm. And just to have that sort of um, discussion and natural conversational feel to it just ignites ideas. Yeah, yeah. And it's a testimony of the power and the importance of community, right? We can all approach scripture individually on our own, in our own private study, um, and that will only take us so far. It's the interchange of ideas. It's the conversations that we're having that take us to the next level of growth and understanding, which is what I think makes this so exciting. Yeah, and it's exactly how I see this podcast, even with our audience, you know, I see them as being a part of the conversation, you know, even though they're not here in the actual podcast with us. I mean, they're, the things we are saying to each other are provoking depths of thought in them that then goes into their teaching in church and their witnessing and their sermons and their ideas, right? It's, it's, it's provoking ideas and looking at the text Fresh, And so we've really focused, you know, the whole point of season two was to move away from sort of topical approaches that I was doing in season one and to buckle down and focus on the historic Jesus. Who was this man in Nazareth who um, claimed to be the son of God that other people claimed was the son of God? 
Um, and what was the historical evidence for that? And I feel as we're entering into the third quarter of this season that we have done an excellent job of balancing the historical, geographical, cultural data of this Jesus of Nazareth with the idea of the power of his words and the life-changing transformation mm. he brought even on his way to death. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This historical figure named Jesus, whatever you may believe about him, is influential. He is a a person of interest, right? Whether you love him, whether you hate him, he's there. He's part of history. And because of that, right, we can look at his life and we can draw things from his life. Now, you and I, you know, we're followers of Jesus. We're going to, we're going to establish the fact that Jesus did live and exist and he taught, and we're going to use that information to help us understand him deeper and better so that we can uh, follow him at, with a reasonable faith, right? And, and a faith that, that transforms our life. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, love him or hate him, Jesus is there, right? And you got to deal with him. Even an atheist or an agnostic or just a secular historian, they could not doubt the impact of the historical Jesus mm -hmm. on Western civilization and its development. Jesus of Nazareth has impacted history in a way that I'm not sure any other historical figure has. I would agree with that 100%. Um, I, I challenge anybody to name someone who has a lasting influence of 2000 years. Here we are, right? Mm -hmm. Discussing this influential figure, uh, talking about the impact that he had, not just on his time and culture, but literally across millennia into our time today. And if there's one thing we know about any historical figure, is that eventually they die. <laughs> and we've come to the point in our discussion of Jesus where we're now looking towards his death. We're looking right. towards his last moments on earth. And, uh, and even in his death, I would argue, there is a difference between Jesus and any other historical figure. Right. So recently we just were recording the episode dealing with the messiahship of Jesus and him being a king uh, and the unexpected king at that. Right. Mm -hmm. And with most kings, John, we would say that their death is the end of their reign. But with Jesus Christ, his death is the beginning of his reign, right? Mm. <laughs> Which makes, you know, it's really the beginning of his impact. I mean, that's really when he gets power. That's really when the world takes notice. I mean, even skeptics of the level of Bart Ehrman will say there are few things as certain in all of human history as the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like this is an undisputable historical figure 
an event that we're beginning to walk towards his last days in this episode, right? Yes. But it is in his march to death that we see his march to power. Mm. Whereas with every other king in history, their death is the end of their reign. Mm. In Mark 10, we have this passage and it says that they were on their way up to Jerusalem. So they're heading towards Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But the disciples don't seem to understand why they're going to Jerusalem. And in my morning Bible class with my church members, (laughs) whenever we study the Gospels, there's always someone who says, Pastor, how come these disciples have no idea what's going on at any point? And I'm just like... (laughs) Mm, it reminds me of somebody. <laughs> like, we never understand what Jesus is really doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? True. And, yeah. And so here Jesus is, and he's like, look, we're on our way up. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. This is uh, Mark 10, verse 33. And they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, literally the Romans. Jesus' prophecy is not wrong here. Mm -hmm. Who will mock him, spit on him, and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. And immediately, James and John rise to the occasion and say, can we share in this power? (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens next. Like Mm. when you come into your kingdom and you are prime minister or you are king, do we have some of that power? Like, it's just like John, they, they miss why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. And and going back to your original statement about the disciples, like why, thinking to themselves, like, why are we going, why are we going back to Jerusalem? Right. We, we have to take uh, the story in context because every time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, people want to kill him. Yeah. And so every time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, more people start hating him and, and it gets, it gets quite, um, it gets quite bad as far as uh, personal relationships between Jesus and the religious leaders to the point where they literally wanted to kill him, right? And the disciples knew that Jesus wanted, uh, that the, the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. And so the disciples were like, why are we going back? Like, what is the point of going back to Jerusalem unless... Unless it's to take your rightful place as king. Ah, so you're right. tying the Zebedee brothers, James and John, and they're and Jesus is clearly saying, "Look, I'm going to die," and they're like, "Yeah, whatever, Jesus, you're going to become king, and we yeah. want a piece of it." Exactly. So Jesus is literally trying to tell them, "No, I'm not going to to take up the crown. I am going to die. That is what I am doing." And and it's almost like the disciples are just kind of like, you know, they're they're looking at each other and maybe whispering to each other and they're just like, ah, we know. 
you know, we know what's really going to happen. You know, it's the time has finally come. He is going to pronounce his kingship. And, and I think that's the irony here. And it's what makes the narrative so compelling is that Jesus can literally tell them exactly what is going to happen. And their own worldview prevents them from actually digesting what Jesus is telling them. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the Christ, in their minds, there is no way he's going to die before establishing the Davidic kingdom. You know, a thought comes into my mind and Jesus has already proven that he has power over death. Oh, right. Yeah. And and, you know, with the resurrection of Lazarus or the resurrection of Jairus's daughter, um, Jesus has already proven he has victory over death. So it could be that even though Jesus is talking about death and he's talking about dying, that the disciples are just like, yeah, but that's not that big of a deal. Right. Um, Because if anything were to happen like that, eh, we'll just get resurrected. I don't know. That's just a thought that I have. Yeah, so there's a lot going on is all I'm saying. And there's a lot of reasons for confusion. And more so, the Holy Spirit has not been poured out on the disciples to the degree that it will at Pentecost, which is, again, a foreshadow that we can't fully explore. The point is, is that Jesus clearly tells them, I am marching to my death. Mm. Like, literally, he says... They will mock me, they will spit on me, they will flog me, and they will kill me. Mm. You can't miss what he's describing. Yeah, and so the irony here is, you know, when we look at the last week of Jesus, often called the Passion Week, right? Mm -hmm. On the first day of that last week of Jesus, he is having a triumphal entrance. Mm-hmm. Over the Mount of Olives, fulfilling messianic prophecies. Yep. And as we will see as we go through this, he marches himself right down to the temple with a parade of supporters. Yep. Screaming crazy things like, let's make this guy a king. And his last week is sealing his fate. And before we jump into this last week, what we believe about this week is largely dependent upon which religious traditions we come from. And I I, mm-hmm. I, I want to just sort of say that up front. John and I have, have looked at the week and decided how we see the week as we read the scriptures. We do understand that different religious traditions see the final week of Jesus slightly different. Um, but John, you raised a couple good questions uh, with me in our private conversations about why there may be differences of what we see happening on each of the last days of Jesus last week. Yeah. So, you know, as you kind of start to try and figure out the last week of, of Jesus and a lot of people have attempted to put map it out, right? right. They want to, you know, and, and for obvious reasons, right? This is an important week. It's leading up to an important event and, you know, people kind of want to map it out. What was Jesus doing? They want to follow along, right? They want to follow yeah. along with him. Yeah, we, exactly. And, and not only that, but it's, also the week that we probably have the most information about you know all of the gospels 
spend significant amount of time in this last week up to his death and his resurrection, right? So we have the most information out of his three and a half year ministry. We have the most information about this last week. So it, it's it's possible to create some sort of map on what takes place during uh, this last week. However, not everybody agrees. Not everybody will say, uh, okay, for sure this happened on this day of the week. There is a little bit of room for discussion. There's a little bit of room for for disagreement. Um, For example, uh, most people uh, think of the triumphal entry taking place on Sunday. And as you mentioned, Vinny, uh, people with a strong liturgical uh, calendar are going to definitely place the triumphal entry on Sunday. It's going to work really well with church service for a lot of people, right? Right. right. And and a lot of people will call this Palm Sunday. Right. Um, and, And so the triumphal entry takes place on a Sunday. And that's definitely the traditional day for this event. But there are some who have mentioned that it could have taken place on Monday and not on Sunday, right? And so there's a little bit of uh, disagreement there. And it all it all depends on how you look at the words of the text and how you look at the timing of the text. Um, another example of this is when was Jesus, when did... Um, when was Jesus anointed in Bethany, right? This is the story of the woman who comes in and washes Jesus's feet uh, with her tears and with her ha- and dries them with his with her hair, right? A lot of uh, the tradition will place this event on the Wednesday uh, of that final week. And yet some people will argue, no, it probably didn't happen on that Wednesday. Actually, we don't know what happened on Wednesday. That's a lot of the information that I've read. They're like, yeah, Wednesday is kind of like, you know, we're not really sure what happened on Wednesday. They were probably having prayer meeting. <laughs> right. Or Jesus was was just kind of hanging out in Bethany, you know, with, with Lazarus and, and his sisters, right? Um, and so they place that anointing of Jesus uh, kind of like the weekend before uh, the last week. Um, and so, again, uh, but if you really look at the text, it's possible that it could have been on that Wednesday of the week. Because Mark 14, if you read uh, verse 1 of Mark 14, it says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Right? They were only two days away. So we know that the Passover was celebrated on Thursday, right? Mm -hmm. And if the Passover was celebrated on Thursday, then this event that's being described in Mark chapter 14 is two days from that. Now, some of us will take a look and say, okay, well, that's Tuesday, right? Two days before Thursday is Tuesday. But again, that depends on how you mark your days, right? Uh, There are, there's this idea um, in Jewish reckoning where the part equals the whole, right? So if you are in a part of a day, that counts as a day, right? Right. right. So then you could have 
uh, you could have this event being on Wednesday because even if it's just Wednesday afternoon or whatever, right, that counts as day one. And then, of course, you have the Feast of Leavened, of Unleavened Bread or the Passover, and that's Thursday, which is day two, right? Uh, so you can count it that way and still have this event taking place on Wednesday. So, or you okay. could reckon it by how how the Jewish uh, tradition is to begin a day at sunset. Uh, and so if this is taking place uh, on Tuesday, mm. right, at sunset, that would be Wednesday, <laughs> you know, of, of that week, right? If this is taking place in the evening, and it probably was in the evening because it looks like it was a dinner party, right? And so it probably was taking place. Uh, the dinner party probably started before sunset because everybody likes to travel during the day to get to their destination, right? And so, and so when this is happening, you know, it probably might have been on a Tuesday, but it would have been considered a Wednesday because you know of how how the Jews reckon their time, right? So it all depends on how you take the information that you read and the culture context of what's taking place and then you can kind of begin to map this out is this a hundred percent certain no it's a guess it's an informed guess it's an educated guess an ongoing discussion right but i don't think anybody can definitely say well this is exactly how the week went down but we can be fairly close into understanding right. what happened on each day right i i, I want to just invite our listeners to hyper focus for a minute because it can sound like John and I are, you know, mumbling on about theological nuances or historical nuances. But what we're saying is that Jews viewed the week differently than westernized Christians view the week. Mm -hmm. And from a Jewish perspective, a part of a day could count for the whole day. Mm -hmm. Also, secondly, from a Jewish perspective, the day starts in the evening at sunset, whereas in our world, the day starts at midnight mm -hmm. in the morning, right? Shabbat didn't start Friday at midnight. Shabbat, their Sabbath, the Sabbath, started Friday at sunset. And so they counted sunset as the beginning of the day. So this does become a factor when things are happening in the evening of this week, right? So hmm. is this dinner party in the evening likely, which is maybe why there's some discrepancy. And then when you're when you're looking at, you know, who the different authors you know, for example, Luke writing primarily to a Gentile audience, he may reckon his days a little bit differently than Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience. And so all of that has to be taken into perspective when you try to map out the different days and what's happening this last week leading up to the death of Jesus. So take us back to that first day of the week. Let's start there. 
All right. So right there, uh, that Sunday before Jesus's death, um, uh, Matthew 21, for example, it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to uh, Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus, he sends two of his disciples and he tells them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away, right? So Jesus sends his disciples ahead to find a donkey and to bring him that donkey because Jesus intends to ride on that donkey into, uh, into Jerusalem, um, now again, this is kind of one of those situations where you're wondering why Jesus is doing what he's doing, right? Because he's basically asking his disciples to just go take a donkey, right? <laughs> you know, and it's just kind of like uh, one of those situations where Jesus does uh, crazy things, right? And so he's telling these disciples, yeah, go, you're going to find a donkey. She's going to have her colt by her. I want you to grab that donkey, bring her to me. And if anybody says anything to you, you just say Jesus needs it. So Jesus is definitely pulling rank here, at least on this occasion, right? He's saying, you know, if anybody asks for anything, tell them that I need it, right? Now, Matthew specifically ties this to, uh, to what uh, the Old Testament spoke about, right? So Matthew specifically ties this to, um, to to the Old Testament, right? In verse four, it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a cult, the foal of a donkey, right? And so Jesus rides in on this donkey. The disciples do what Jesus asked them to do. And everybody seems to literally just go crazy. Right. Because because Jesus, so it seems, is marching into Jerusalem to take his place as the king of the Jews. Right. right. In fact, uh, the, the text, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that, that Matthew is alluding to is Zechariah chapter nine, I think. Yeah. The word is out about who Jesus is. I mean, every time he goes to Jerusalem, he gets in trouble. And you can track that in John really clearly. And he's been doing miracles. He's now raised someone from the dead. The word is out. And so when Jesus says, hey, go get a donkey. And if anyone asks what what it's for, tell them Jesus needs it. That's not arbitrary. Hmm. Whoever they got that donkey from, if they said, Jesus, this one is causing all the chaos in Israel, wants the donkey, this is a key messianic prophecy. Mm -hmm. They're like, he's about to declare himself king. (laughs) They get what we don't, is what I'm saying, right? Yep. It's ignited now. Like, Jesus knew what he was doing when he did that. He's like, hey, go fulfill this ultimate messianic prophecy that everybody knows about. And I'm going to come over the mountain and they lose their stuff, man. 
Yeah. And, and, and again, you have to remember, this is the Jesus who fed the 5,000 and who then again fed the 4,000. This is the Jesus who who heals sick people. This is the Jesus who raises people from the dead, because by now everybody heard about what he did at Lazarus's tomb. Right. Even the religious leaders couldn't deny what Jesus did. They just decided that they wanted to kill him because of it instead of, you know, giving their they're putting their faith in him. But like literally everybody is now connecting the dots right this guy can feed us this guy can resurrect us this guy can heal us right and now he's going to take his place as king in jerusalem riding on the donkey coming over the mount of olives just like king david did when he came to reclaim his his throne from absalom this is the image in their head yes exactly the triumphant king david coming back in to claim his throne right and yeah they start shouting hosanna to the son of david this (laughs) this is clearly a reference to jesus's kingship i mean there is no other way of putting of, of interpreting what is happening here jesus is marching in as king. He's marching in as king. He's following David's path down the Mount of Olives like David did when he reclaimed his throne. He's coming on Zachariah's donkey. They're shouting, Hosanna, this is our new king. This is David. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's cursing the fig tree along the way, right? Like this is Monday, right? Yeah, yeah. He's um, yeah. So going yeah, going into Monday, right? He's he's you know he curses that fig tree um, because it wasn't giving fruit, and and, and really that fig tree is kind of like a parable of of Israel, yeah, of of Israel, and he's basically saying um, everybody has had their chance now to make their decision about me. The fruit will tell what side they're on. And it's true because the death of Jesus was a a watershed moment in the sense that by the time Jesus dies, everybody has made up their mind about what they think Jesus is. But in Luke 3, he directly talks about this um, this cursing of the tree, right? And, and, and we find this in Luke 3 verse 9 if I recall I'm, I'm just sort of going there and I believe it's John the Baptist who is setting down this prophecy that now Jesus is fulfilling at the cursing of the tree and and so what we find uh, John saying it as a part of his proclamation of who Jesus is um, he's going forth and talking about this tree and John said to the crowds in verse 7, you brood of vipers, who is going to warn you of the coming wrath, uh, produce fruit and keep repenting. And they're like, no, we have Abraham as our father. And, And John is like, I tell you, out of these stones, God can produce children of Abraham. And then verse 9, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so when Jesus comes by, having come down off the Mount of Olives, having been declared Hosanna, the son of David, having been called Messiah, he rightfully is now passing judgment. Mm. Because the priesthood 
the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the establishment should have been there embracing yep. him as king. They, they are not bearing fruit. Mm. So the tree must now be cursed. Not only is it a parable, but it is a clear visual of what has happened uh, to the people in, in, in Jerusalem, to the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem. Jesus did everything he could to take care of that tree, to tend to that tree, to help that tree uh, grow and flourish. Jesus did everything he could, but still right. there's no fruit. And, and where's his next stop? The temple, right? And what he finds in the temple are thieves and robbers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and and not in the sense that you think, right? You know, these, these are people who have set up a system in the temple to take advantage of less fortunate believers. Yeah. Um, because in the temple, what Jesus sees are people who are selling sacrificial animals, animals to be sacrificed. And they're selling them to people who desperately want to make themselves clean, who desperately want to make atonement for their sins. And they're selling them at absolutely ridiculous prices. Prices that people should not have to pay so just so that they can atone for their sins. And Jesus looks at this and he's like, wow, everything in this temple points to me. Everything in this temple points to my sacrifice, points to what's going to happen later this week. And the people have corrupted the symbols and the imagery, and they've distorted this beautiful picture of God who says to everyone, come freely and find salvation, find cleansing, find atonement with your God. And they've placed a barrier, a financial barrier between people and God. And they basically say, if you want to be right with God, not only do you have to use our animals, which are the only animals approved for sacrifice because we have the best animals, the clearest animals, the purest animals, right? Not only do you have to use our animals, but you got to pay the price that we place on those animals. And if you can't do that, then there's no hope between you and God. It literally, it literally is the antithesis of what Jesus came to do. And, and this is why I think the fig tree is important on Monday and Tuesday. Because the fig tree bookmarks the temple. Hmm. He sees the fig tree on the way to the temple. And the next day he sees the fig tree again. And sees that. It's done. Mm -hmm. It's finished. It's withered, right? Yeah. You see, 
The irony for me is not just the corruption in the temple, but the rightful judgment of Jesus on the fig tree. Because the glory of Yahweh has come to the temple. Yeah. And there's not a priest who recognizes that God himself is standing in their temple. Hmm. We could go on on this point, and I'm not going to, except for to say that when they rebuilt the temple, they did not have the Ark of the Covenant. It was lost. This is just a historical fact that we'll bring out here for half a second. It was lost. We don't know where it was, and, and still today, nobody knows what happened to it. There's lots of theories, hence a good Indiana Jones, Jones movie. <laughs> <laughs> right? But the, but the Ark of the Covenant was lost. In the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, according to Moses and Solomon, right? That's where the Shekinah glory of God rested. The essence of God would come and rest over the Ark of the Covenant. There was no glory in that temple when they rebuilt it. Because there's no ark, no presence. Mm -hmm. But the presence came to the temple. And not only had they corrupted the temple, they couldn't recognize something greater than Shekinah, which is a piece of the glory. The actual glory is there. Mm. So it's fitting that the next day when he sees the tree, it's dead. Because they are spiritually dead. This is a proclamation of judgment on the spiritual leaders of that day. Yeah. Now, I'm not being like saying on the Jews because there are many Jews who would follow Jesus and do follow Jesus, but on the leadership of the day. Right. The figureheads. Mm -hmm. The establishment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It has been corrupted. Right. So Jesus pronounces a curse upon the fig tree that's bearing no fruit. He goes into the temple and he sees the religious leaders bearing no fruit. And then he exits that temple. Uh, and the next day he returns to that tree and it's dead. It's withered. And he says, yeah, this is basically the condition of these religious leaders. Right. And then it's back to the temple. Yeah. Jesus uh, is back in the temple um, and he gets he gets questioned in in the temple. This is the Tuesday. Um, he, yes, yes, on Tuesday. So He's Sunday back. he comes in. Sunday he comes in. Mm -hmm. He has the procession in, Hosanna, King of David, son of David. Then Monday we have the fig tree. We have his presence in the temple. Mm-hmm. Tuesday, we have the fig tree is dead because he found no life in the temple. Mm -hmm. And now he's back at the temple. There's a pattern happening here. Now he's back at the temple on the other side of the fig tree again. And he's questioned. Who's questioning him? It's the religious leaders. Right? Uh, <laughs> the ones that have no light. <laughs> yeah. No, right? They're 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 questioning uh Jesus. Um they're questioning really his authority. Remember, at this point in time, Jesus already marched in on a donkey. Right. All right. People they are notice. people are singing his praises. Right. They're shouting Hosanna 
to the son of David. Okay? Like Jesus is is literally on the on the precipice of people pronouncing him as king. Okay? And yet he has beef with the religious leaders, right? He really takes the religious leaders to task. Okay, he basically overturns tables. Okay, he flips tables <laughs> because of what they're doing. And when he goes back to the temple, they're like questioning his authority. They're like, do you have a right to do this? Like, I, we know you came in. We know about your little parade. But do you have the right to be doing this? Mm. By what authority are you doing these things? Who has given you this authority? How are you just taking it upon yourselves to march here into Jerusalem, acting like a king and flipping tables over in our temple? And of course, Jesus, he responds to their question with a question, right? He says, he says, I'm going to also ask you one question. And if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And he says, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? And so then the religious leaders are like, uh, so they, they kind of start whispering to each other. And the Bible says that they discussed it among themselves, right? And they say, well, if, if we say from heaven, then he's going to ask, uh, why don't you believe him and if we say human origin well then the people are not going to like that because a lot of the people think that John was a prophet so we can't we can't answer this question right <laughs> right <laughs> and um, and so then they answer Jesus they're like yeah we don't know we, we don't we, we have no idea Right. That Jesus is like, well, if you can't answer that question, then I'm not going to answer your question. Right. Because it's basically the same thing. Right. right? It's basically John's authority. Right. Was of heavenly origin. Just as Jesus's authority was of heavenly origin and both of their authority was confirmed by what I believe was the spirit of God moving in the lives of the people who listened to their message, who put their faith in their message and chose to follow him. And, and so John and Jesus are of the same vein. John and Jesus drive their authority from the same place. And if these people can't come to a conclusion about the authority of John, there is no way they're going to come to a conclusion about the authority of Jesus. I think that's the key of the fig tree again. And the reason I went back to point out that it's John who began this story about trees not bearing fruit. <laughs> and so John is testifying of what Jesus is finding. John knew. He's like, it's going to happen. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exa exactly. It's really incredible. Now, the other thing that happens on Tuesday, we're, we're on Tuesday, is the Discourse on the Mount of Olives. And I'm not sure how oh, much man. we want to get into that. It's a very long sermon. Yeah. And this is where I'm going to put my plug in uh, for season one. We break this sermon down over five full 
episodes. Okay. <laughs> I, John, I, I, I had Travis Walker from Aventology come oh, yeah. and, and he did two parts of that with me. And, awesome. you know, his specialty is prophetic stuff. And so our listeners can, I'm going to refer them back to episode 17 in season one. And I think it goes all the way to episode 21 or 22. And we go right into depth into this sermon. I know that there's still more things to happen on Tuesday, but I didn't know if there's anything you wanted to say about this Sermon of Olives. No, I, I think what you have unpacked in season one is is definitely going to be the official position, I think, uh, <laughs> that the Simply Devotion podcast will have on, on this particular uh, discourse, uh, because you're right, it's, it's a very long discourse and it relates to Jesus and the second coming. And of course, the only thing I would say is that even as Jesus unpacks this sermon, the disciples are still thinking earthly kingdom, right? right? Messianic kingdom on earth instead of the heavenly kingdom that Jesus is, is wanting to establish. And so it's literally that thinking that prompts this sermon, right? Because right. the disciples, right. Right. 100%. The, they're looking, they're looking at the temple and they're just like, man, this is awesome, Jesus. And you're going to be like in control of all of it. And, and of course, Jesus, he goes and he's like, you know, there's going to be a day where not one stone is going to be left upon another, right? Right, 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 right. So again, Jesus is kind of trying to burst their bubble. Exactly. You know, uh, with with this sermon. Um, and again, if we want to if we want to look at the details, yeah, definitely check out that season one five part series on the Olivet Discourse. The disciples are like, even the religious leaders are concerned that you might become King Jesus. <laughs> and he's like. King of what? It's all coming down. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Judas hears this proclamation of Jesus on, on the Mount of Olives. If he becomes king, it's all going to be destroyed. They don't know what that means. But Judas has the other big event on Tuesday, right? Yeah. Uh, that's the, the traditional date of uh, when Judas negotiates with the Sanhedrin and he basically agrees to turn Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. And so we have this sort of large view. Jesus might become king. Mm -hmm. We're concerned he might become king. We're excited he might become king. We have where Judas could choose to believe like the other disciples. Judas is hedging his bets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Again, it goes back to the fig tree, right? We've been largely discussing the fig tree as it relates to the religious leaders of Israel. But the fig tree also applies here on an individual level to people like Judas, right? You contrast Judas with with the other disciples, right? And, and again, you're seeing the fruit here. The fruit is playing out. The fruit shows you where people are as they relate to, to Jesus. Well said. Well said. Now, now, Wednesday is the day of contention, right? You, you mentioned that in some of our introductory thoughts. So that, yeah. Um, did this 
anointing at Bethany happened on Wednesday, Wednesday evening. Was it really Thursday because it was Wednesday after sunset? We, we It's unclear. Did we just put it Wednesday? I wasn't being facetious about prayer meeting, but... Uh, <laughs> Churches like Wednesday, and we need something to do on Wednesday if we're celebrating the last day of the week, and we're not sure what happened on Wednesday, so we push this to Wednesday. I, I mean, I, I put it on Wednesday because while some would argue that it happened before this final week, um, you can make a case that it happened during this week. Um, and, and you know, Wednesday is a possible date, but it's also the day that we have the least information about, right? We don't know what happened on Wednesday. <laughs> so, you know, Wednesday's a light day, so let's put the uncertain event there, right? Right, exactly, the uncertain. Although you can still kind of make a case for it on Wednesday, but yes, it's, it's kind of, yeah, let's put the uncertain event on the day that we know the least about. Right, um, and look, as we said in the beginning, we emphasize now, right? Trying to track down the exact timing of these events is really good so that we can have an emotional impact in tracing the week. But let's keep that somewhat separate from trying to prove. I mean, I could think about the Last Supper or the Triumphal Entry or the Anointing at Bethany on a Saturday, Friday, or Monday if I want, right? It's helpful to us maybe devotionally to pace them out. Hmm. But we don't know exactly for sure about this, if this happened on Wednesday or the week before, as you said. Right, yes. However, it did happen close to the burial of the Jesus, the death of Jesus. Jesus links this moment to preparing him for his his ultimate burial. In in Mark's account of this last week, which I started with in 10, mm -hmm. Jesus is in Galilee and has to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem. So I put this in my own thinking in this week, if it's Wednesday or not, because the distance from Galilee to Jerusalem on foot makes it very unlikely that there would have been two trips to Jerusalem that close together. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's that's a fair way of, of putting it. Um, but it, it is an interesting event because you have this woman who comes in and washes Jesus's feet with her hair and her tears. And she pours out expensive perfume um, from an alabaster jar. Again, an expensive jar. I mean, like this literally, this lady is pouring out probably her life savings, right? On, on Jesus. And it's almost like she's the only one that gets it. Right. And again, it goes back to that fig tree, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that fig tree where you see that this woman is bearing fruit. She's right. been listening nice, to nice. Jesus. She's been hearing Jesus. She gets what Jesus is doing here. And she's literally like, it almost seems like she's the only one that really gets it besides Jesus. Right? And so she's anointing him, preparing him, not anointing him to be king, 
but anointing him for his burial. Yeah, yeah. In a version of this story takes place in all four gospel accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's in that story that Jesus has that side conversation with Simon, the Pharisee, right? Mm-hmm. And Simon is thinking in his head, you know, if Jesus knew what manner of woman this is, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then Jesus answers him out loud uh, with a little parable, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing to me that this is a story that shows where the fruit of everyone is in that. The disciples are mumbling. They're not sure what to make of it. Mm-hmm. Judas is like, hey, dude, I want the money so I can give it to the poor. And we know, you know, John actually says, and we know he was a thief. (laughs) Simon is like, ah, I set this whole meal up to get Jesus to stop saying he's Messiah and to become one of the rabbinical people. (laughs) We're we're, we're here with the top brass in this dinner party. I'm trying to make peace, but he lets this woman come in and touch him. Like, everybody's fruit is on display in this story so yeah it's true it's true um and so it is it is a very interesting story to look at and i think it's a it's an important story to place if not in the last week of jesus but around the time of the last week of jesus because as you said it sh- it gives us an opportunity to see people's fruit thursday which is the last day we're going to cover because we're we're going to ha- handle the crucifixion, which is the last part of the week in a whole episode dedicated to the crucifixion. Um, some traditions call Thursday Monday Thursday, right? Monday, yeah, Monday Thursday. Monday Thursday. Do you know about that phrase? I do not. <laughs> right. Well, the reason they call it Monday. Thursday is um, because of the foot washing, the ceremony of the foot washing that happens in the upper room. Uh, I don't know the exact origin of the word Monday, but Monday means foot washing. Mm. It's um, tied to a washing ceremony. I, I guess it's from a Latin word. Um, And it actually comes, according to this, out of a song that was used during the foot washing ceremony. And so when we get to Thursday, we're really talking about this idea of Passover and what happened in that upper room. Um, Traditionally, again, I don't think we can prove this from scripture, but traditionally, the Christian church has maintained the idea that that upper room belonged to the family of John Mark. I don't know if you visited the traditional site of that when you were in Jerusalem. No, I don't think I don't think we stopped there. Did you visit the city of David and the tomb of David? Uh, we did not. Okay. It is the room above the traditional site of the tomb of David, which is not David's tomb. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but traditionally, the church believed that this is where that took place. That Passover meal has really become the focus of the Passion Week for most Christians, I think. I'm 
I'm wanting us to explore that connection of what Jesus says about the new covenant of his blood and of his body to the fact that this is a very Jewish festival. And the reason I brought up the, the idea of Monday and the, the ritual washing, the ritual washing is big deal um, for, for particularly the first century Jews. In Passover though, like Passover is their biggest holiday, right? Like if Christians would say Christmas is our biggest holiday, Passover definitely would have been the Jewish biggest holiday, right? Right, it, it commemorates probably one of the most important events of Jesus's, uh, sorry, of the of Israel's history. Exactly, it's being freed of bondage, being freed of slavery. Mm-hmm. So Jesus takes this age-old idea that involves ritualistic cleaning, freedom of slavery, um, being set free from the oppressor. And now applies it to himself and to what he is about to do. How do we get there? What happens? So Thursday comes and uh, Jesus uh, sends his disciples to prepare a place for celebrating the Passover. And, you know, they secure a room and they've got that room uh, set up to celebrate Passover. Every Jewish person would know how to set up the room and how to prepare uh, for Passover. And when the disciples and Jesus walk into that room, it would have been customary for a servant to wash the feet of those of the guests that were attending that event. And if the household did not have servants, then it would rest on any women that would have been there. And if there were no women in there, then it would have been, you know, whoever would have been considered the least in that room. Uh, Because foot washing was considered to be one of the lowest of the low jobs, right? That that somebody could have Um, because it it was just a dirty job, number one. Um, Even today, the idea of of touching somebody's feet is just, you know, it's not something that we would consider to be super enjoyable. And then you add on to that a thick layer of dirt and dust. (laughs) It's just not something that you would want to do, right? So foot washing is considered to be something that is to be done by the lowest ranking person in that room. Now, in all their preparations, they did not secure, it seems, it did not secure uh, servants. 
and it doesn't seem as though there were any women in that room uh, to perform the cleansing. And so none of the disciples would have ever expected Jesus to do that, to wash people's feet. But at the same time, none of the disciples seem to have thought that they were less worthy or less important than any of the other disciples. <laughs> so they're just kind of in that room looking at each other, trying to see who's going to do the dirty job. Who's going to do the dirty job. Of course, none of the disciples were willing to humble themselves, to set their pride aside. You got to remember, we started this podcast with the story of the sons of Zebedee who are literally asking to sit at Jesus's right and left, right? Like these disciples are constantly arguing about who's better and who's more important and who's going to be high ranking in the kingdom that Jesus comes to establish. So none of them are willing to take the place of a servant because all of them think that they are better than everybody else. And so the only one, the only one who we could consider to be unworthy of such a job is the one who chooses to perform the act of foot washing. So the Bible tells us that Jesus, you know, he ties a towel around his waist, grabs a basin of water, and he begins washing each of the disciples' feet. And you just, you have to put this into context because earlier that week, Jesus is literally riding in on a donkey, announcing to the world that he is the Messiah, the son of David. People are shouting, Hosanna, 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 right? Mm -hmm. It is the same guy who chooses to wash the feet of his disciples. The disciples should have been ones washing Jesus's feet. Right. But it is Jesus who's washing the feet of his disciples. Because at the end of the day, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to humble himself because Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. But as the book of Philippians tells us, he did not consider divinity, right? Or equality with God as something to be grasped, something to hold on to. Yeah. Because not even divinity was important to Jesus if that meant losing the ones that he loved. And so yes. he humbles himself 
and he becomes a servant and he tells them, he says, guys, what you have seen me do, that's what you should do. Because the way my kingdom works is not about fighting to get to the top. The way my kingdom works is about serving from the bottom. Irony always strikes me that as Jesus is doing this, like, so ritualistic washing is a huge thing. And this is the worst of all ritualistic washings because of the nature of foot washing. Mm-hmm. And the nature of things that feet end up in in an agricultural society. And the example of service Jesus is giving. And it's at that after that amazing display of what the kingdom's supposed to be, that the spirit of Satan finally gets his wedge fully into Judas. It's almost like if we're going back to the fig tree, mm. it's almost like Jesus is doing battle to show Judas how to bear fruit. But Judas doesn't have that. And so leaning back Jesus says even after all of this John 13 one of you will betray me the stark contrast between what Jesus is doing and what Jesus can see in the heart of Judas is as stark of a contrast as you're going to find any place in scripture and then they're all trying to figure out who it is. And Jesus is like, it's the one who dips his hand in the bread dish with me. Because mm-hmm. Judas dips his hand in the bread dish with Jesus and then gets up and leaves. And the other disciples are like, I wonder if he's going to the store to get something we forgot. <laughs> like, like, yeah. The irony here, right? It's just... When you eat the cedar plate or seder plate, now, there are different ways it's been celebrated at different times, but it's basically always a circle. You eat food in a certain order. And the bread is always eaten last. It's broken halfway through the ceremony. Each thing on the plate represents a point of oppression for God's people and you eat a little bit of the food and then you drink a little bit of the wine. That's why there's bitter herbs there. That's why there's lamb there. That's why there's an egg there. You know, you get some Christians who get all upset about eggs and they think that it's, uh, you know, some sort of, you get Christians that are all upset about eggs and they think it's some Easter eggs. and They think it's some sort of uh, pagan ritual. It actually comes from the cedar plate. It's one of the items that the Jews use to represent new birth. Nothing pagan about it. But you go around this plate and you eat these things in order and you break the bread halfway through the meal, but you don't eat the bread. 
until the end. And for me, this makes this whole story that you're telling me even more gripping. Because it's not like Judas didn't have time to think about the example Jesus just gave him. He went through the plate with Jesus. They're at the end of the plate. It's like, it's just so Jesus. He's just always like giving more time. Like he knows what's going to happen, but he's just like, I don't want it to be. When Paul recounts that his flesh and his blood are the new covenant. I see the connection here to them being the end of the Passover. They're the last items on the Passover plate. And when Jesus says, I will not eat of this plate or drink of this plate again until we are in the kingdom together. The reason they are the elements of the new covenant is Jesus is saying, I held out as long as I could for you to choose me. And I think, in essence, that is what is going on in this eschatological age that we live in. Just as Jesus waited for Judas as long as he could to make the right decision, and Judas wouldn't. I think today, in the eschatological age of the new covenant, Jesus is waiting as long as he can for us to make the right decision. And if we will or not, that will not stop him from giving us every opportunity to. For me, there's a powerful message in that. Yeah. It's the Jesus that's looking for fruit. Yes. Willing to wait, even though the ax is laid at the tree. And so off to the garden they go. They finish up Passover. And they go off into the garden, which is where we'll pick it up in our next episode. You have been listening to a podcast produced by simplyvinny.com. Stop by our website, read our blog, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and all that jazzy promotional stuff. But remember, I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you when life throws a monkey wrench at your head, Jesus is still the logo. The reason, the logic, the word that builds your life back all the way to the kingdom of God. Until next time, God will be blessing you. See you at the next podcast.